AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the crop insurance industry. With increasing commodity prices, higher price volatility, and rising input costs, America's farmers and ranchers are relying on crop insurance more now than ever before to provide individualized protection and to secure operating loans. Protecting 295 million acres of farmland and more than 120 commodities across the U.S., crop insurance is the primary safety net for many farmers, enabling them to supply our country with food and fiber year after year. Crop insurance, providing peace of mind now and for the next generation of agriculture. Bill Reich, welcome to AgriPulse Open Mic. Thank you. Glad to be here. Tell us about the Trans-Pacific Partnership right now. Is it in jeopardy following President Obama's visit to Japan, uh, where he and the Prime Minister just recently gave this vague response uh, to progress on the negotiations? Well, I don't think it's in jeopardy, but it's certainly slowed down. We're currently trying to figure out exactly how optimistic to be. There are um, different reports about uh, how far they got or how close they got in uh, in Tokyo. I think uh, our side was a little bit more optimistic than the Japanese side. Uh, the, the thing that's worrisome, of course, is that the whole negotiation is stalled, waiting for the U.S. and Japan to make market access progress. And uh, this was the action-forcing event, you know, the leaders meeting. And if they couldn't get it done here, it does make you worry a little bit about, you know, when, when is the next time that they'll be going, going to be able to get it done? Uh, the American government's view seems to be that they made a good bit of progress, the issues have been narrowed, and that it's possible to, you know, to move forward at, at not at the presidential level and, and finish. So we'll see. Um, I think our view is that we need to give it a little bit more time, but it may well be that the right answer for the United States here is to suggest to the others that we go ahead without Japan if they're not prepared to come in on the same terms as everybody else. Well, I wonder if this is kind of a multi-level chess game that's being played because Japan is doing bilateral agreements uh, with Australia and working on one with Canada, uh, and there's a possibility they could be omitted that I'd like to get to in a minute. But how do you think that their agreements with Australia and potentially Canada will play out in the final TPP? I think it makes things more complicated. And one of the ironies of that is that this is sort of our fault because we were the ones, we, the United States government, were the ones that insisted in the beginning that the market access negotiations be bilateral rather than one big multilateral agreement. I think that's because we didn't want to revisit some issues like Australian sugar that we had dealt with in the past in, in our own FTAs. And we have maintained that we would not have a new negotiation on market access with countries where there's already an FTA, that forced everybody to go around and cut bilateral deals. So we, you know, we set this up, and now we're paying for it because Japan and Australia, in particular, have made a, a market access deal in agriculture that I think is uh, it may be fine for the Australians. It's clearly less than what uh, anybody here would like to see for us, and so it, it is going to make it harder, I think, to do more than that with Japan worries me. Mr. Rice, I don't know what let me ask you about Japan being a part of TPP. 
uh, or China not being a part of TPP, or neither one of them being a part of it. Is there any factor there that would be ideal for the U.S., and would there, there be any area that's totally unacceptable? Well, ideally, everybody comes in, and it becomes a free trade area of the Pacific. I think, keep in mind, if you get away from market access for a minute, a lot of the negotiation is really about China, because if you look at rules, if you look at state-owned enterprises, if you look at intellectual property protection, a whole bunch of other things that are on the table, it's all about creating rules and standards for the point at which China will ultimately come in. And I think they will. I think it'll take five or ten years, but I think they will come in. They're clearly thinking about it now. They've changed their tone. You know, when this began, they said it's all part of the American plot to encircle them. Uh, and now, if you talk to the Chinese, they're actively thinking about it. You know, they don't want to be left out. And one of the reasons why uh, the negotiation is important is because it'll set a high bar on rules and standards for when they come in. That's why I think my members would rather go ahead with 11 and, and not Japan uh, with a high bar on these issues rather than have uh, go in with 12 and a low bar if we can't get a very good agreement with, with Japan. Um, clearly, I mean, you make a good point. With Japan out, the benefit is not as big because that's a big economy. On the other hand, if they're not going to make a lot of concessions anyway, how much are we going to get? Let me switch oceans and talk about the European huh. Union. Uh, I can't believe we can keep all these balls in the air at the same time, but they've been showing reluctance to moderate much of anything on U.S. agricultural products, yet we have this transatlantic trade investment partnership that uh, the U.S. is pushing for, and the Europeans seem to be uh, entertaining. Do you see any likelihood that it can become a meaningful trade agreement? I think there's a good chance, and again, the reason, as in TPP, the reason, oddly, is China. Uh, both Europe and the United States see a very large, uh, very successful competitor out there, and it's the old Ben Franklin quote, you know, if we don't hang together, we'll all hang separately. And I think there's a view that if we can transatlantically have common standards, uh, you know, common uh, rules, common means of doing business, we will have the biggest, you know, middle class, high consuming market in the world, and people will be producing to our standards collectively. Uh, and if we can't do that, if the world becomes, you know, carved up into smaller pieces, uh, ultimately we'll all be producing the Chinese standards, which is not good for our manufacturers and service providers, and not good for Europe's. So there's a powerful incentive. Uh, and on those issues, uh, I think agreement is easier. I mean, one of the ironies of both these talks is, you know, we, we talk all the time, it's about rules, it's about state-owned enterprises, it's about 21st century issues. And what do we end up fighting about? You know, beef, pork, and cheese. It's, uh, you know, it's the same things we've been fighting about for 50 years. Well, speaking of cheese, the Europeans <laughs> have this almost humorous um, requ requirement or request now on geographic indicators that... Uh, yes. The U.S. dairy industry is quite concerned about uh, on what we consider common names of cheeses. Um, I think it's clear we appropriated those names, but what do you think is going to happen on that disagreement? Is it going to be resolved economically, or is it more than that? Well, people smarter than I am uh, and closer to it than I am tell me that there are compromises. 
uh, here that are that are possible. Uh, then they don't tell me what they are. Uh, I think that I mean the Europeans will come in and want to protect everything, you know, everything that has a name on it, and that will be off the table. But um, you know, there are. You know there are middle grounds here. Most of them are, are don't involve the United States abandoning the name Feta, for example, or Cheddar. You know, if you want to use cheese, but putting a you know another adjective in front of it, Wisconsin Cheddar or Vermont Cheddar, uh, which a lot of them do anyway, to make clear that it's not Cheddar from from England. Um, that that way. I mean, from the European point of view, you protect the name because you've differentiated the product, but you haven't really forced the American producer to abandon something that has significant uh, name recognition. Um, so I, I can see some workouts here. I don't think that at the end of the day, though, that we will ever, we the United States, will ever be able to give the EU everything it wants in this area. Let me move to uh, NAFTA and to agreements or disagreements between the U.S., Canada, Mexico. Uh, first of all, to the south on the sugar industry, they've uh, brought some cases, the U.S. sugar industry, before the International Trade Commission and the Commerce Department saying that Mexico is dumping sugar into the U.S. market. Mexico indicates that they have the right to do so, and they also are critical of the U.S. sugar program. Do you have any view on whether that could cause any bigger problems between the U.S. and Mexico? Well, it could. I mean, it, it shouldn't. Uh, these things are matters of sort of administrative law proceedings. You know, allegations are made. There are neutral parties that are supposed to adjudicate them and determine whether or not the Mexicans have, have done what's alleged and also whether the Americans have been injured by it because it's sort of a two-part thing, not just a one-part one thing. And that will all proceed. Uh, but the reality is, you know, these things don't happen in isolation. And there is a growing tendency of countries, if someone launches one of these things against them, uh, they find something to complain about against us and launch a case against us going the other way. You know, and there's no shortage of opportunities that the Mexicans would have to do that. So I'm worried, yeah, that it could end up uh, making trade relations uh, much more difficult. Uh, the Mexicans so far have not done that, and uh, I hope they won't. Uh, I also hope the case doesn't end up with a with a an affirmative conclusion for our growers. I think they're, this is a classic example of what happens when you interfere with the market, like our sugar program has done. Uh, you know, these guys were making piles of money in, up through 2012 when prices were very high. Now they've gone back down to more normal historic levels. But that's a big change, and so, so people are unhappy. I see that, but to blame it all on Mexican sugar, I think, is uh, is uh, goes way beyond reality. One last thing, and this is Mexico, Canada, the U.S. mandatory country of origin labeling on meat. Uh, it seems to be beef more than anything else. Um, that dispute has a large number of U.S. packers and uh, major cattle organizations fighting the U.S. government's mandatory country of origin labeling, and they're joined by Canada and Mexico. Any observations on that one? This is not an issue that we've spent a huge amount of time on in, in my organization. It's one of these things that, as you said clearly, it's a, it's a political 
mess because the industry is divided. Some of the you know some of the cattlemen are on one side, and uh, I think more of them are on the other side. And then the Mexicans and, and particularly the Canadians, because there's so much cross-border traffic in beef, are are uh, very agitated about this. They've taken us to the WTO once and are threatening to do it again. It's an issue that you know from for the, just from a consumer standpoint. You know, intuitively, it's kind of sensible. Well, yeah, why not? You know, what's wrong with knowing where your meat came from? It turns out, in reality, it's hard to implement, you know, because of the nature of the business. Uh, It's very difficult to implement, and it's particularly uh, difficult to implement it in a non-discriminatory way. Uh, I can't tell you how it's going to turn out. uh, uh, My organization, which represents, you know, multinational companies, is big on compliance. You know, we we lost this case in the WTO. Initially, and our view is, you know, the United States should just comply uh, with the WTO ruling and get it over with. But, uh, you know, from the Canadian and Mexican point of view, we haven't done that. So it's probably going to be litigated again and go on for some time. Bill Reinsch, it appears you are always going to have work. Uh, these uh, trade agreements uh, continue to pop up, and they uh, never seem to uh, be finally settled. But I do appreciate you giving us some insight into that. So thank you for being our guest on AgriPulse Open Mic. It was a pleasure. Anytime. Thanks. AgriPulse Open Mic has been brought to you by the crop insurance industry, providing peace of mind now and for the next generation of agriculture. I'm Ken Root.